Hi, and welcome to episode 18 of the VSuit Podcast. We're back in our familiar audio format after a brief flirtation with the world of video at VMworld. Following a series of correspondence, we would like to say publicly that no potatoes were harmed during the making of the show. Our guest on this show is another Dutch guy. He's got a little blog and he's really shown some promise in the world of virtualization. If he keeps going the way he is, who knows, in a couple of years he could really achieve something. His blog, Yellow Bricks. His name, Duncan Epping. Duncan, welcome to the show. Thanks guys for having me on board. Oh, it's uh, been, uh, been quite a while, but uh, glad, to, glad to have you here. Um, so, what, what are you up to at the moment? Oh, I'm actually not doing much at the moment. Uh, I'm actually uh, in between uh, projects, um, but um, for the last six months, I've been working on a lot of the, uh, the storage collateral that has been released around vSphere 5.0. And of course, I I just released my book as well, which is the uh, the V-Square Clustering Guide. Okay, cool. So is is, is a new product something uh, secret, or is there a little hint that you can uh, tell us what you're what you're going to be on next? Um, well, I'm actually working on a uh, I'm I'm starting to work on a uh, a project which is around uh, V-Square 5.0 and V-Shield app. And I'm going to create some sort of uh, case study slash reference architecture where I lay down all the architectural decisions around implementing a solution like that. And we're planning on doing that uh, for some other uh, cloud management or cloud infrastructure uh, components as well. Okay, so, so moving away from the, I mean, you know, you've been really heavily focused on the storage and general clustering side. but So moving on to vShield, which... I guess is you know it's quite a um, previously a fairly niche product within the um, the lineup that like, if you had to use Cloud Director you needed to use it but outside of Cloud Director did it I don't think it had a particularly big uptake. Um, well, so is this sort of part of a, a movement to to get to raise awareness around that? Well, I guess it's it's a fairly difficult product to sell if if, if I'm honest about it. The thing is that. Um, well, we're VMware, and everyone sees us as a virtualization company, and they don't see us as a uh, security company. So, as soon as we start talking to folks, they're usually the virtualization guys, and most of the virtualization guys are not concerned about security at all. You know, they've got a separate team doing security, so why would they bother even looking into it? The thing, though, if you look at uh, VShield and, for instance, VShield app. It, it, it enables you to actually do security um, on a different layer than you normally used to. So instead of doing security in the outside um, of your service, you can start secure your environment on the inside, which is a, a different approach, I guess. I'm not saying that you don't need physical firewalls, but at least you can add or enhance your current security with uh, solutions like vShield. That's kind of what uh, virtualization has done to this networking and in, in, in general and, and storage teams as well, isn't it? And it's kind of bringing everything into the uh, the hands of the virtualization admin again. Uh, so it's kind of uh, going the same way, I guess, as, as we've seen done with management of storage and whatever. So yeah, that's that's a good point if you look at it from a. Uh uh, from a strategic perspective, so the networking guys, they're already on board with the Nexus, with mm -hmm. the V-Switch allowing them to do uh, uh, NetFlow and port mirroring, for instance. Uh, the storage guys, 
they were always on board because they loved virtualization because it enabled them to have larger arrays, you know, more more capacity, whatever. They needed the capacity because they, we started virtualizing. Uh, the security guys, uh, well, they were still, they were probably the missing link and uh, they are getting pulled in as well, so... I, you know, I get the hunch that sort of security guys are going to sort of really try and hold on to their silo a bit tougher. You know that they they're not going to give up without a fight. Um, and you know the missing link can be quite accurate, particularly with some of the security guys I've worked with. That um, <laughs> you know they're hairy and they like to clean up. Uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess yeah, people, we know one or two. <laughs> we've all seen those security guys and we've all worked with them and the thing is that uh, they don't need to give up on anything uh, they need to start embracing a new layer of security and that's, that's the main thing they need to start realizing that there are multiple layers as soon as you start virtualizing applications and that as soon as someone would actually breach the physical firewall and manages to get or manages to, to get outside uh, of his boundaries then the world is open to him, so virtual uh, securing on the virtualization layer is, in my opinion, essential. Oh yeah, but they, they, as with everyone else, they need convincing first, or, or seeing is believing, or whatever. So it, it's kind of the same uh, battle we've done already with a lot of other uh, siloed uh, IT people around uh, in, in the in the surrounding uh, areas of the virtualization space. So, but it. it, it of course, security guys might actually be a bit more difficult to, to get on board just because they need to be sure that the security is there before they even start looking at it. So it, it, it kind of, it, it's kind of backwards uh, compared to storage. Well, if you compare it to storage and networking, with networking, we're basically claiming some of their responsibilities. It's the same mm -hmm. as we're taking back some of the responsibilities for, for security. We're actually adding uh, security and we're adding responsibilities uh, for them as well. Yep, Which, yep. That's why it's a different discussion because we're actually giving them more work. Yeah, that's true. But it's, uh, it's also something that I haven't been, been looking at for the most part until now anyway. So it's, uh, it's definitely adding something. It's not removing something from the existing security uh, infrastructure that's in place anyway. True. Um, and do you think it's easy to demonstrate a, although um, it's kind of hard to, when you're virtualizing, but to demonstrate a tangible benefit to them? I mean, obviously the storage guys can you can demonstrate a big benefit because you can go look. You can buy some really shiny arrays. Um, the networking guys, you can sort of show, show them, um, you know, some of the internal workings of it. Although having seen the the output from uh, Network Field Day. That there are still some networking guys that need some convincing uh, of the uh, the power of uh, VMware networking, but that's uh, probably a discussion for another day. Um, but you know, what's what tangible sort of things can you show the security people, and that it's going to make uh, make the solution sort of more more secure? Would you do sort of a, a pen test before implementing a VShield type solution, and then after, and show that? It stood to sort of much higher level of attack when you implemented the additional layers of security. I think that's probably uh, probably the best way uh, to convince them. Uh, the other thing with VShield app, it's it's not only a, it's not only a file firewall, but it um, 
it allows you to test for a certain uh, compliance or regulations as well. And, you know, it's not only visual app that uh, we actually do it visual endpoint uh, for, for uh, antivirus, but uh, also visual apps. So there are multiple components. So it's that's the reason it's also difficult to sell because there are multiple different uh, components. It's, yep. it's fairly complicated to explain if you're not an expert. Yeah, I mean, it's gone from some... I remember when VShield was announced, the, the original API was announced at VMworld 2008, I think. Um, and the only thing that sort of initially was talk, talked about was the uh, the antivirus side. And funnily enough, the, the development of that still seems to be quite slow. You're, you're kind of limited to using Trend at the moment. Yeah, there's not many vendors that seem to have gotten on board with it. There's some vendors that even, it seems they haven't even gotten even close to virtualization yet when it comes to that space. Yeah, that's that's something that surprised me as well, because especially if you look at the uh, the VDI environments, they can, you know, they can benefit uh, from a proper uh, antivirus solution on a hypervisor level. And you would expect that most of the, uh, the larger uh, vendors would actually jump on top of it, but... I'm pretty sure that those are actually losing deals at the moment because they're not offering a solution like that, and one of the competitors is, competitors is actually offering a, a solution. So it's yeah, yeah. In, in the VDI space, I, I would think that doing antivirus, especially on the uh, on in inside the virtualization layer, instead of doing it inside each and every desktop VM, would also kind of alleviate some of the, the I.O. issues you might have with uh, running traditional antivirus inside the VMs. I think, yeah. well, I think it's a dual-edged sword, though, because whilst you're not running the I.O. at the VM level, you're potentially creating an I.O. bottleneck of, you know, everything has to go through that one, um, uh, the, the endpoint security VM, and if that experiences any issues, then that has the potential to affect everything. Um, so, you know, I think, I guess you've got to be really careful about how you plan the deployment for it. But yeah, I, That's the same with storage as well. I mean, if, if you install a, a standard AV solution inside a VM and everyone starts uh, checking, checking their VMs at 2 a.m. each day, you're <laughs> going to have some performance issues on that uh, storage array anyway. Definitely, definitely. So it's, it's kind of the same thing, just moving it to another place where you could actually probably protect it better by, sure. by scaling it to a, differently than you would to the, the storage bit. Yeah. I guess it also probably cuts down on um, your sort of VDI app in overhead because you no longer have to recompose a, a pool because you've done an AV update or, you know, done a major engine change of your golden master VM. So you don't have to recompose the pool because you're not you're doing all of those changes outside of the, the video Apple. Yeah, it's a, it's a different approach, definitely. But, uh, of course, every even if it's a different approach, it still needs to be configured properly and, and scaled properly anyway. So that's a, that's a case whether you use uh, whatever solution you're using, whatever it is, it's, you need to scale it properly and you need to configure it properly to, for it to, to work as it should. I mean, is there scope for, thing, for VShield to be kind of closer integrated with things like the view security server. Um, it, it's interesting that that sort of server that's effectively sort of, you know, front, a front-end proxy for a system hasn't come under that VShield banner. Yeah, that's a good question, and I can't actually answer on that. Um, not that I can't talk about it, but it's I, I don't know the answer. I'm not uh, too involved with view at all, so... 
Uh, I try to avoid the desktop side, uh, mainly because my focus is vSphere and data center, and that's that's more than enough currently to handle, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, but I can add that that's definitely going to happen. Some sort, some layer of integration, and not not only around that, but um, you know, using visual, uh, for instance, to shield off your uh, your desktops, whatever. I can you, you can come up with all sorts of scenarios to uh, incorporate the visual product into VDI, I guess. Yeah, no, that's I mean, obviously, since you mentioned that you sort of don't really do as much of the desktop stuff anymore. I mean, um, since coming coming away from the PSO world. Um, do you still manage to sort of keep keep a toe in um, what's a, what's happening in people's data centers, or do you are you still sort of fo- now sort of focused around the internal, um, well, the marketing side of things? Well, that's a question I actually get a lot, and uh, people are on the impression for some reason that uh, when I say technical marketing, it's more marketing than it's technical. But uh, the thing is that uh, we don't, well, we hardly do any actual. Uh, marketing uh, material so we've got two different uh, departments we've got the product uh, marketing department and we've got technical marketing and we focus on all the technical collateral and that means that we need to be in touch with our field as well so uh, we basically talk to our SEs we talk to the the consultants uh, the technical account managers and try to figure out what kind of challenges they have Uh, we try to keep in in, in touch with the uh, the partners as well and try to figure out what challenges they have and uh, write articles about it, uh, white papers, uh, yeah. uh, PowerPoint presentations, whatever they need, but we try to enable them, so we need to be in touch with the field, otherwise we won't be able to do our jobs. Oh, cool, so you, you still you still get to spend a little bit of time in, in, the, in the field from, from time to time? Yeah, not only that, I, I, just, I just finished a call with a, uh, with a customer who had a, a couple of questions around uh, stretch clustering, and so we also take customer calls depending on the uh, on the problems that they are facing, and um, it's difficult for a single person to handle uh, calls all over the world. But we we do we try to do our best. <laughs> Excellent. It's uh, you know I, I think it's uh, it's quite important in these sorts of things to be definitely keeping it real. Well, that's, yeah, that's but- the main focus of the uh, the team that I work for as well. If you look at the team that we have in Europe, so we have Alan Renouf who's been working out in the field uh, for years and years. And, well, you know, all of you guys know him from his blog. And then we have uh, Cormac Hogan, yeah. um, who, st- who started started out in GSS. And he's definitely the storage expert uh, within EMEA. Yeah. So he, he's I, a field I, guy. A guy. I, I guess you guys need to drop the... Uh, you should probably drop the marketing uh, title of that department because it... it it, it makes a lot uh, for a lot of good uh, kind of jokes re- regarding people who that's going that are moving over to the marketing side of, of things instead of uh, when the real case is that it's not really marketing as such uh, and what people perceive marketing as. Yeah, well, so it's, it, yeah. it's still it's still marketing in a way. I would say it's you know you're communicating, um, it's it's messaging. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, you're trying to sell. You're trying to sell the company. You're trying to sell. Uh, your products, but uh, in a way, even PSO does that. In a way, your partner does that as well. Mm-hmm. We're all trying to sell something. You're, you're trying to sell yourself. You're trying to sell services. You're trying to sell a product, whatever. But in a way, you're selling something. So you're all trying to market something. Yeah, yeah, of course. But it, it's it's kind of the the whole stigma, I guess, of of being called a marketing guy instead of a technical guy, even though you have both uh, of those terms in your 
in your title or in your yeah. department. It's kind of, uh, you know, it, 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 it's it's easy to to blame something on marketing instead of blaming it on the technical stuff. If you get if you get me, yeah, yeah, I know what it's you're marketing, doing. Jim, but not as we know it. No, <laughs> now, we're all selling something. That's true. Everyone has a price too, I guess. Well, that kind of makes me feel kind of dirty. <laughs> you should. And we know what you sell. <laughs> we just can't talk about it. No, no. no. <laughs> Spe- speaking of books, actually, um, do you um, you obviously spend quite a lot of time with Frank and the um, the actual engineering teams at VMware, sort of referencing your books and making sure that pretty much when you make a statement, it's correct. And if and if it's not correct, you kind of uh, go out of your way to ensure that it gets corrected uh, either online or you know sort of via via your blog um, and I've noticed recently um, and I'm not going to mention the name of the book that I've been reading but I've been reading some books which make somewhat more prescriptive statements um, and with absolutely nothing to back them up <laughs> so I was wondering you know how do you go about sort of ensuring that when when you write something it's as correct as you can get it well, the thing is that Frank and I, we've got really uh, short lines towards the engineering department. So if you look at the uh, the DRS team and the HA team, we actually know most of the people. Uh, we've met most of the people. I've, I've been to Palo Alto probably uh, 10 times this year uh, alone. So I know most of these guys fairly well. And um, we actually had one of the engineers reviewing um, reviewing the book. So for the HA section, and we had a DRS engineer actually reviewing the book as well, just to make sure that all the statements that we made were uh, were accurate. Well, on top of that, as when we started writing, we actually start testing the product at the same time. So if, if we write something, if we make a statement, we actually validate the statement as well, just by testing specific scenarios. So basically checking if, if the product actually responds as we are claiming that it, it's going to respond. And I think that's a key thing. If I And I know, you know, some of the things that you mentioned that uh, people are making statements which are incorrect and I've, I've read a couple of books lately and to be honest uh, I was kind of disappointed in the quality of the work it's you know people are making statements without validating them and I think you need to realize as, as soon as you start writing a book um, well you better be you know able to back up some of the claims because people are going to take it for granted and they might end up with a non-supported environment or a non-stable environment or you know, it's it could cause all sorts of uh, issues, and that's the reason we made sure that uh, the statements that we made uh, were absolutely validated. So, uh, Chris, from the specific book uh, you read, you want to mention one of the things that really stuck out for you? There, there, there was one thing, and I'm just going to read this as a phrase, uh, if I just find the relevant page. Now, this this is in a book that was published this year, so, you know, I'm not delving into history. Uh, it's got a published date of 2011, and I quote, most iSCSI and NAS devices in the industry come configured as a single large array, and this cannot be changed on many of these devices. End quote. Yeah. So, I've never heard of NetApp. Yeah, I wonder what, what <laughs> arrays he's actually looking at. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Since, since the past five years, I've been playing around with iSCSI arrays. Uh, most of them, yeah, have multiple volumes or, or, you know, as in the NetApp world, aggregates. Yeah, actually, that's just I one actually only know. I only know one vendor actually does a single data store, and they are yeah. quite new as well. So it's <laughs> quite new. Yeah, I mean, so they, uh, IBM XYV that does that sort of thing, um, but it's specifically designed around having 
one massive data store. Um, not data store, sort of one um, actual array, and you then have logical LUNs on top of that and data stores. And I guess Tintree, they do the whole sort of the data store per device. Is that how they they work? Yeah, they do a single data store per device, okay. NFS-based. Okay. Um, but they're, they're specifically optimized to do that. That's, that's what they, they're kind of built for. Um, yeah, it just seemed like a really bizarre sweeping generalization to make. Um, and, you know, that was, there are probably many others that I could find if I really started to delve deep. But I kind of read that and didn't really want to read too much more. Well, uh, you see that in a lot of blog articles as well, to be honest. It's, the thing is that if you look at, um, at, at blogging these days, I, I think, because it's you know it started to get really popular a year a year and a half ago two years ago yeah we started seeing all these you know random blogs popping up and people started you know blogging maybe for the wrong reasons I don't know but uh, at least not everyone realized the amount of time that it actually uh, takes to write a proper article <laughs> it's it's not only developing the content but it's validating the content as well. You know, checking it three or four times before you actually publish it—it it, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, it does. It, 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 besides, uh, speaking of which, uh, I'm I'm waiting for some stuff from you, Ed. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. I, I got to finish. My, I got to finish the other performance test ones. You'll, yeah. you'll get those soon. Yeah, cool. <laughs> you better make sure your sources are right, Ed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the Dutch D Mafia will yeah. be be looking. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was definitely one of the more amusing things of, uh, of VMworld this year with monster VMs and zombie VMs and staged fights between the two. <laughs> the fight was quite funny, though, because when we, uh, we recorded the video, uh, not many people actually knew what was happening. So as soon as, we started, <laughs> as soon as we started shouting and ran up to the monster VM, we had like 50 or 60 people surrounding us because they didn't have a clue what was happening. They thought it was a real fight. So that's <laughs> Uh, I, I'm just seeing that stuff like that is just going to escalate next year. <laughs> well, you know, you so, can someone only, started something. You can only do stuff like this once. You know, it's just, it, it's kind of like Power CLI Man. Yeah. Uh, if you do Power CLI Man again next year at VMworld, no one is going to think it's funny. You know, it's yeah, that's on, that's a stunt you can only pull once, in my opinion. Yeah, sure, but I, I, I'm sure someone will come up with something that's similar and do that. One, one of the uh, possibly a vendor or something uh, doing yeah. something like that in the solutions exchange, just because someone did it in the, uh, otherwise the, the year before and, and thinks that's a good idea. So it'll be interesting to see what whatever happens next year. Yeah, I mean, uh, next year should be well, interesting with uh, a good, a great location for it. For it, uh, you know, a bit of a change of change of pace in Barcelona. Um, hopefully the warm weather will have a good effect on people. Yeah, hopefully I won't be represented as a potato as well. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wonder what happened to the potato. I actually left it in front of the convention center as I got on the bus. <laughs> you just left me? Yeah, I left you there, man. I figured oh, okay. somebody else will take you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I am to you. It's just some handout. Okay, fine. <laughs> So stepping off the topic of, of IT, this seems to be the longest we've stayed on IT um, in a podcast recently. Uh, Christian, understand you had a rough day today. Yeah, I've had better days. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, 
I just got something cut off to make sure that I won't have any more sm- uh, small potatoes running around anymore. So <laughs> it's it's been a been a been a painful day. <laughs> You've been downsized, dude. Oh yeah. So I'm 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 no no longer able to produce kids or potatoes or whatever. <laughs> or at least that's what they're saying. We'll see. I don't know yet, but. It's kind of awkward that you're complaining about it because in your picture you look like a tough guy, but now you're more or less <laughs> trying. That's that's kind of surprising, Christian. Yeah, I, I'm every end of the scale, I guess. <laughs> I'm all like everything else. I'm all over the place. So I understand. I, afterwards, you drove home yourself from the, the hospital, right? Yeah, it's a good three-hour drive from the hospital into uh, and home. So yeah, I, th- I think that I is drove- surprisingly manly. Had you run home, it would have been better. (laughs) (laughs) And I just have a question about how they do the procedure in Norway. Do, like, Mm -hmm. a huge guy named Lars just kick you in the nuts and send you home? or? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Or, in my case, uh, it was one guy and three women in their 60s or something. Ooh, that's a little little rough. I think they had a lot of uh, issues they needed to get resolved and used me to... (laughs) Get it fixed, so to speak. They specially selected to find the only three ugly women in Norway. <laughs> yeah, and the, 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 the best part is that we have a local hospital here, but they don't do that procedure. So I actually had to drive three hours to get there uh, yesterday, uh, slept over until this morning, and then had the procedure done, and then drove back home. So, which makes no sense to me at all. Why, why couldn't they do done that here in, in Bergen and be done with it? But no, <laughs> you need to get uh, out of here to do that. I don't know towards why. Oslo or further nor- or north? Uh, it's towards Oslo, yeah. Okay. So nearly half the way to Oslo. <laughs> I guess obviously being, being Norway, when you see the bill for it, then your balls will definitely drop off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that's the kind, kind of the uh, the good thing about it, though, and that's why I, I drove three hours. It doesn't cost me that much. It's, uh, it's we have healthcare here, so uh, you, you could have saved yourself like the drive and just gone to Oslo Airport and ordered some food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you spent three hours there, and I ordered a chicken, chicken and salad and a drink, and it came to nearly thirty pounds. Yeah, for just airport food. It's like last time I spent thirty quid on something. It, it was you know. Prepared by virgins underwater in Ecuador. Um, <laughs> well, that doesn't happen in Oslo or in Norway at all. <laughs> it's um, yeah, things cost. You could say that. <laughs> yeah. So you were stuck in Oslo for a good few hours, weren't you? Yeah, I was just just trans- transferring uh, on flights, uh, and so Oslo Airport is probably not the place I would choose to spend the rest of my days. Um, but no, I- it could be a lot worse. It's a completely uninteresting place to be, by all means. There's nothing going on there at all. So, yeah, no yeah it, it, it wasn't uh, wasn't the most active of airports, but uh, but not to worry. I was like, able to uh, buy a wide range of salted sweets to uh, shock and amaze my friends when I got there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Duncan has uh, a lot of airport war stories as well. You've been traveling a lot around, I guess. Well, for the last 12 months, I've been traveling to Palo Alto mainly, so uh, ah, okay. that's, that, that, that's actually not too bad. It's a single flight from Amsterdam to, uh, to San Francisco, 
Uh, when I was part of PSO, actually, I uh, I traveled a lot more, and especially when I was part of the cloud practice. Mm-hmm. Then I flew out, um, well, basically throughout Europe, but uh, mainly to London, which is not the most exciting place to be in, as well as, uh, well, especially not when you're there for a couple of weeks or uh, months in my case. At some point, you've seen it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but airports, you just get used to it, so it's, you know... I, you, I walk up to the to the uh, to the lounge and that's it. I sit down, do some emails, and catch my flight. Hmm. So, when are you moving to uh, Palo Alto then, instead of traveling? It's a good question, and uh, my manager actually asked me the same question. The thing is, I've got kids, mm-hmm. I've got a wife, so uh, moving out is not is not easy, in my opinion. Especially not uh, when your kids are not native speakers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm in the same uh, kind of kind of deal here. I, I, if it, if I just had myself to worry about, I probably would have moved from from Bergen a long time ago. But with a wife and kids that are really happy being here and don't want to move anywhere, it's it's basically not going to happen anyway. So, I'm, yeah, you know, in a, in a job like like the one I have, there's no need to actually be in Palo Alto. To be honest, I can that's do it. true. Yeah, I could do it from anywhere. I could be, you know, I could be in Norway, for that matter. Yeah, you just put stuff in the cloud and everything works fine. So, indeed, <laughs> and it's it's marketing what I'm doing. So, okay, yeah, that's true. It doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just about like fluffy stuff. And, you know, indeed, yeah. <laughs> what color should the t-shirts be, and making sure everyone's using the right capital letters and stuff. <laughs> and it's important, though. <laughs> yeah, I I have some people at VMware you need to tell that to, by the way, but. That's. Uh, <laughs> I think I've told every single employee by now how to spell it. So, okay, try, try the licensing team that sends us the emails regarding uh, licensing renewals. Yeah, I've seen them. It's <laughs> you get used to it after a while, but <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm the same way. It's kind of it, it kind of stands out whenever I read something that's uh, not capitalized correctly. So it annoys me as well. So yeah, I mean, speak, speaking of things that are definitely capitalised correctly, um, <laughs> VAAI's been sort of making its way into the news fairly recently. Um, in terms of you know, you're now starting to see small um, storage uh, providers, even open source uh, storage appliances and uh, hardware that's supporting uh, VAAI. And I wonder, you know, is is that a good thing? Um, you know, is it nice just because you can run it in a home lab so that you can configure the same sort of offload that you would do on your um, VMAX, even though you're running a Netgear? Um, you know, is, is is it worth doing? Is is it something that we should we should be looking at and trying to try and get the latest and greatest sort of software running on whatever homebrew storage we're using, whether it be sort of Nexenter or um, FreeNAS now supports it, uh, or is it worth just you know, buy buy a PX6 and deal with it? It's a good question. It's you know when we released vSphere 5.0 and introduced the uh, the the compliance to the T10 standard, uh, there was more or less bound to happen. So uh, basically, any any array out there or appliance that uh, is compliant with the T10 standard uh, should be able to leverage the uh, the VAI features. Um, in my opinion, it's a good thing. Um, if it's suitable for the home market, probably not. If you look at the uh, the way that at least I've built my test systems at home, 
I've got a PX6 uh, at home as well. Uh, although it's a fairly, you know, powerful machine compared to the iX4, for instance. Which I have. It, pro <laughs> it probably wouldn't be able uh, to cope with the uh, with a large copy job uh, doing that on the back end. Because mm. it's, still, it's, it's still a fairly small processor. It, it's probably going to be more efficient, but you will probably swamp the, swamp the device fairly quickly. So I would say that for the uh, storage solutions, that it's, that's going to be useful. Because you can implement that on uh, larger systems as well with more powerful CPUs and, and more disks uh, for the smaller end, smaller type of solutions. I doubt it. But um, there are multiple things that you could use uh, VAI for. So it's not only the, uh, the, the copying uh, of the blocks itself. Uh, zero out could be useful. Uh, yeah. But uh, the locking mechanism uh, offload of that, that might be useful as well in some cases. So... It fully depends on your scenario, I guess. But I think it's a good thing. I, I find it kind of funny that Freenas has support for VAAI uh, before the VNXEs from uh, EMC does. That's kind of weird to me that that's actually the fact. But, but as far as I can see, I, I've been looking at the VNXE 3300 a bit uh, lately, just reading about it. And uh, it, it still doesn't have VAAI on it, but FreeNAS all of a sudden has, which probably said something about the development cycles and the uh, the kind of the power of the open source uh, community, though, uh, that someone is able to, to just jump around and, and do something with it, which probably is more difficult inside of EMC to get a, well, a, a, something out there like that, but it's, it's kind honest, of funny anyway. To be honest, I think it says more about the quality assurance cycles. If you look at a, look at a company like EMC, and I've, I've experienced this internally as well, it's some of the you know minor tweaks, and I, I've always wondered why some of these minor tweaks you know took that long to actually uh, get into a release. But it's it's all about quality assurance. If you look mm -hmm. at the uh, the announcement when we announced vSwift 5.0. Uh, Steve Herrett mentioned some of the engineering hours that went into vSphere 5.0. Mm. If you compare that to the amount, uh, amount of uh, quality assurance hours that it went into the release, that was actually a lot more, but no one actually picked up on that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, of course, it, 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 FreeNAS can do something like that, add it, and just release it until it's an experimental, experimental feature or whatever. Uh, EMC or other storage vendors can basically do that as easily. Uh, they have a lot more responsibility to their customers than, for instance, FreeNAS has. So it, it makes sense, but it's still kind of it's kind of funny to read it, if you know what I mean. It's it, all of a sudden FreeNAS has it and the VNXE doesn't, which kind of reads weird. But it, 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 there's a perfectly logical reason for why it might be the case, but. It's still, uh, it's still kind of funny to me. Yeah, but not 100% sure how many people would be actually putting FreeNAS into production. No, it's true. Yeah. true. You put FreeNAS in front of a VNX, though, <laughs> and just use iSCSI in the back end and then process everything through AI on the, uh, the host you share the iSCSI from. <laughs> so use free, FreeNAS as your storage virtualization layer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there are plenty of paid vendors that would recommend doing that. Uh, 
I'm actually, sure there's a lot I, of marketing people who would do that too. <clears throat> actually, I think Next Flare is supporting it because um, we we have a couple uh, VNX uh, 55, 55s, mm. and I believe that in the Next Flare it's supported, or it is already supported in the current shipping flare. Not yeah, it, it might be. I, I, I've only looked at the VNX okay. E3300, okay, yeah. which okay. doesn't have support for it yet. It has been. Uh, Chad Sackage said something about uh, Q4 2011 for a release version of VAI on that. So it might just be around the corner. So, but it's it's what I've been looking at lately for a number of reasons. But uh, and, and I, I was kind of surprised to 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 learn that it actually didn't have that support already. So another thing to point out, though, with the uh, with VAI is that. Uh, not every vendor's implementation is actually uh, is actually similar. So, mm. um, you know, the fact that NetApp offers it or, or EMC offers it doesn't mean that the the experience you'll have is actually similar. It could be that the uh, an offload of a clone, for instance, of, the, of a copy process is a lot faster on NetApp than it is on EMC, or it's faster on on, on EMC than it is on NetApp because they've got different implementations. So, it, it mm. and the same applies to, for instance. Uh, the uh, the offload of the locking mechanism. Yeah. So they're not all similar. No, so there, there might be different uh, variations of whatever uh, mechanisms in there, uh, even though it's uh, based on the same kind of uh, standard or or whatever. Yeah, well, this, this, the, the thing that we standardize is the command set. Uh, we yeah. didn't standardize the implementation of them. They're all using, you know, different uh, block sizes. They've got... Uh, it, it's a it's a different mechanism that they use, so um, we had, we don't actually control that. And I think the uh, the best example around that is the uh, the unmap feature that got pulled actually, piece uh, mm. 5.0 recently, because of the fact that some of the vendors uh, had different uh, implementation mechanisms uh, for the unmap feature, uh, which led uh, to some uh, issues around storage vMotion, where storage vMotion would just uh, basically bail out. Uh, after a timeout, yeah, because yeah. of the fact because of the fact that it took very long to unmap a certain amount of blocks. Yeah, I guess it's almost like um, Bluetooth used to be about ten years ago <laughs> when it was first released. Um, you know, trying to get you'd have two two phones that both said they had Bluetooth, but could you get anything to transfer between them? Could you help? Um, yeah, it's basically uh, like Bluetooth on the iPhone, <laughs> which is still kind of like that. Oh, that's eye Bluetooth. It's it's kind of different. Oh, yeah. So, is there, is there anything particularly you you fancied having a, a natter about Duncan before we wrap up? It's a good question. I actually don't know either. Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of conference calls lately, so I'm <laughs> I'm out of topics to to, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> all, all, all talked out. Uh, you know, well, the thing that I, I I do you know something I noticed over the last uh, couple of weeks though is that uh, stretch cluster solutions. Are picking up for some reason, so I don't know if it's a if it's a trend, if it's just a coincidence. But everyone seems to be, you know, seems uh, want to talk about stretch cluster solutions for one uh, for some weird reason uh, at this point. I don't know why, but I've been talking to three or four customers over the last week, and um, there were a lot of blog articles around stretch cluster solutions. There were multiple talks uh, at, at VMworld. It, it's kind of like a trend almost. I was going to say, do you think it's a strategic decision that's been driven from the golf course? I don't know. It seems that most of the people that I've been talking to are actually the the techies, and uh, they want to 
you know, have arguments to convince the management to actually start uh, using a stretch cluster solution. So it's not actually something that's coming from the golf course. It's probably the other way around, to be honest. And, you know, I'm not sure where it's coming from, to be honest. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, because that's almost like the the drive for virtualization in the first place was something that was very much techie-driven. Um, and that it was, it was techies who, who realized how good virtualization was. And they then sold that up to the up to the boardroom saying, look, this is going to save us a ridiculous amount of money back in the sort of, you know, the, the pure consolidation days. Um, and sort of some of the previous things, things like, you know, cloud, as it were, has kind of been driven from the top downwards a, a bit more. Um, so it's interesting to, to hear of a, um, a technology and a potential sort of, you know, change to architecture that's, that's been driven back from the, from the data center, as it were. Yeah, I was quite surprised about it as well. And, uh, you know, the, the, the funny thing is that every single call I had, uh, we start off discussing uh, stretch cluster solutions. And at some point, uh, people start talking to the company manager. And, well, there's always still a need to explain that, you know, they're not similar solutions. It's, it's not, you know, you can't compare a stretch cluster to a site recovery manager solution, in my opinion. The site recovery manager is all about creating disaster recovery plans, workflows, you know, allowing you to fail over uh, a set of applications at a time or even an application at a time. Where a stretch cluster, you know, if a site fails, it's going to come up more or less randomly. It's still going to be you. You who's doing all the work It's still going to be you uh, powering all virtual machines, powering all virtual machines uh, in a specific order to get the application up and running again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I th I've always seen SRM is more of the orchestration layer um, than it is the uh, the actual, although now it's got the host-based replication. Um, it was really just coordinating that failover rather than providing the underlying technology to do that failover. Indeed. Well, with that in mind, guys, let's wrap up this uh, vSoup. Um, thanks a lot to uh, Duncan Epping for being our guest today. Thanks. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. No problem. And you can check us out on uh, Stitcher, iTunes, or vSoup.net.